And that song is powerful. Those lines, you love me as you find me. Who does that? I mean, for real, that there's enough grace to cover all my mistakes. And man, there's a lot of those. I know I don't deserve that kind of love, but that kind of love is who God is. That's powerful. That there's something so integral to the character of God that he would be the kind of God who gives out undeserved love where there's enough grace to cover all the mistakes that he could be someone although completely holy and perfect and righteous that could love me as he finds me. This is exactly what Peter is exploring in his letter. Uh, if, if you were new here, we're in uh, a book of the Bible, which is a letter that was written uh, by Peter, one of Jesus's closest disciples. It's the second letter that he's writing to a group of churches in what we would call modern day Turkey. Uh, they would have called it Galatia. And he's writing to them because there's an issue going on. The issue is that there are these teachers that have infiltrated into these churches and they're false teachers. Uh, they're teachers who are teaching things that are contrary to the gospel, tr- contrary to what is true about scripture. And it's represented in the way that they're living. They're living lives uh, that aren't in line with what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and how Jesus instructed us to live. And so Peter is writing uh, to this group of people for this purpose. Now, He writes three chapters, and it is incredible the way that he structures these three chapters. Uh, We've got a a slide that kind of shows just a little bit. I like to call it a grace sandwich. We've got chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, uh, these three squares. Could you show us that that, that next slide? There we go, right there. Thank you so much. Um, What he starts with is grace. He's got, he ends with grace. And even in the middle where he's talking about justice, it's all about grace. This is a grace sandwich. We've got a grace bun, a grace bun, and some grace meat right in the middle. Or, or tofu, if that's, that's what you do. Uh, you know, impossi- impossible meat, what, or whatever you call it, impossible burger. Uh, I, I obviously am a vegan. I'm, I obviously, I eat a lot of fake meat. Um, not true. So here's what he does, and I love this, because I begin to imagine what Peter is thinking as he's writing this letter, because Peter's had some serious experience with Jesus, right? He, he lived and walked with Jesus, with, with Jesus in his human form for three years, and then he's walked with Jesus as Jesus has now uh, exited the building, but left us his spirit, right? And he's filled with his spirit in the community of faith, And he's thinking about all this as he's about to die. And he thinks the message that I want to communicate, the message that I have to get off my chest to these people is that God is of God of extravagant grace. And he says at the beginning, I want grace to be multiplied to you. And he says, in light of that, in light of what God has done, how should we respond? How do we act and react and live in light of what God has done? that he has made us partakers in God's own divine nature. And he says, we should be people of love. He looks at some more gifts that God has given us, gifts of God's grace, and he jumps into the middle portion, which is really about the issue at hand, the false teachers and what they're doing. These false teachers who have rejected the way of Jesus and are hurting, are manipulating God's people. 
And they just don't believe that God's going to be just. They don't believe that there is going to be justice, that there's going to be a day of reckoning. And so Peter uh, takes painstaking detail through these Old Testament stories to let the false teachers know that God has always been just. He is just right now and he will be just. And then he opens up the curtain for all of those people who have begun to follow after the false teachers, all those people who've begun to be their groupies, who have begun to listen to their teaching, embrace their teaching, live like they're living. And he says, I want you to know that these false teachers, they proclaim freedom, but they are actually enslaved themselves and they are bringing you into their enslavement. They're, they're, they're taking your money. They're corrupting your view of sexuality they are enslaved to their own greed, their own lust, and you are becoming enslaved as well. They are manipulating you. They're hurting you. And then we jump into this last section, chapter three, which is a mirror of chapter one. And he looks at first at this incredible, unbelievable, mind-blowing gift of God's grace. And what Peter does in this section, it's one of those moments in the Bible. I don't know if you have these, but there are times when I study the Bible and, I, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm compelled. I think, oh, that was, that was really good. That was amazing or that was wise. But then there are times when I'm reading the Bible and I think, this can't be the work of humans. This is absolutely the word of God. This is God's very own word that the spirit of God had to be carrying along the writers of scripture. Otherwise, there's no way they could write what they write to do what it does in our hearts and our minds. And this is one of those passages. And I'm so excited for us. But I wanna warn you because this passage walks through the valley of the shadow of darkness in your heart and my heart in order to come out on the other side, bright and beautiful, filled and saturated with God's grace. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to the letter of 2 Peter or 2 Peter, chapter 3, go ahead and do that. Um, if you've got one of those Bible journals, uh, we're going to have some scripture notes on there that you can see and hopefully can help give you some inspiration for you as you're taking notes. Um, but we'll have the scripture on the screen or some of the scripture on the screen uh, so you can follow along with us. Uh, it starts out uh, chapter three, verse one. And these are just, these are my notes. These are not like the end all be all notes of how things have to be. But hopefully these are some indicators of how you, when you study your Bible, can highlight and underline and circle uh, because that can help it stick in your mind, which is the point. We want it to get in our minds so the spirit of God can get it into our heart and out of our lives. So here's where he starts. He says this. He says, um, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, because that is what scoffers do, right? Scoffers scoff, right? They'll come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, here's the thing. Whenever you're studying the book of the Bible, whenever you're studying a letter, whenever you're studying a gospel, whatever it might be, sometimes the author will give us a clear hint to the reason why he is writing this particular letter, this portion of scripture. And whenever that happens, get your pen out, underline that, put a star by it, highlight it, because it helps you know the context. Why did God inspire this person to write this particular thing? And here Peter says, this is why I wrote this letter. He says, I wrote it 
and the one before it to stir up your, your sincere mind. This word sincere, it's a great word. Uh, it comes uh, from a, a word that means without wax. Isn't that great? Did that just automatically like stir your heart and your mind without wax? Mm. Here's the deal. If you lived in a society where there was a marketplace and you went to the marketplace to buy things and you walked by a clay pot, this clay pot could be an expensive clay pot because it's something that would last for a long time, would be useful. But you need to know, is it worth what it is? And so what you do is you take this clay pot and you'd hold it up to the sun. And the sun would reveal if there had been cracks that were, that were filled in with wax, right? And so you wanted, a, you wanted a pot that was sincere. You wanted a pot that was without wax, that was secure and intact and didn't need wax to keep it sturdy. Because if it needs wax, then it is weak and it's not going to be good. It's not going to last long and you're not going to pay the price that it costs. So you're looking for something without wax. Uh, the, the Greek word underneath this word actually comes from more metallurgy. Uh, it, when you, we got metal and you want to test the purity of metal, you'll put it in fire and fire will reveal if it's completely pure or not, or if it's mixed with other elements and other metals. And so this is an unmixed metal. This is what this word means. Uh, it, it would be a heart without mixed motives or a mind without mixed motives. And Peter says, what I want to do is I want to stir up that mind in you, a mind that has no mixed motives, a mind that is pure in contrast to the false teachers because they have mixed motives, right? Their minds are not pure. So he's really contrasting the false teachers in this word and he'll bring it back around at the end of this passage. And it's really beautiful. I'm going to stir up... Um, and what he does here is he connects this passage of scripture to chapter one. If you saw in the grace sandwich, chapter one and chapter three are mirrors of each other. And there are so many connections and allusions back to there. He's quoting and bringing words back to light to remind us of what the structure is and what he's doing and why this is all about God's grace. Uh, he talks about remember and reminder, which you have from uh, chapter one, verse 12 and 15, predictions and prophets from uh, verse 21. Knowing this First of all, this is actually a phrase that he uses in chapter one to bring our mind back to the gifts of God's grace there in chapter one that we hear is also exploring here in chapter three. And he says this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffers, that's not a word that we use often. You ever call someone a scoffer before? It, we, we, don't, I, I, we don't use that. It's, it's, it would be mocking. Someone who mocks people, they mock people, right? Mockers mock. Mockers going to mock, right? I mean, you hear that all the time. That's what they say on the streets. A mocker is going to mock. And so that's what's going on. He says, don't you know this was predicted? This is not something random. This is not something new. This has actually been predicted by the prophets that people who don't fully believe in the gospel, who aren't actually making Jesus Lord of their life, they're going to come and they're going to try and deceive. They're not going to be fully in, but they're going to sound like they are. And so you have to be careful. Mockers are going to come and they're going to be following their own sinful desires. This is what the false teachers were enslaved to, their own sinful desires that we talked about last week. And he goes on and just, just a warning. I didn't put notes up for these next few verses. And so you're, this is where you get to go on your own. This is where you get to eat now with a pen or at home later, you get to make your own notes. It's so exciting. This is incredible. And kicking you out of the nest. 
He says this, he says, they will say, now he's quoting these false teachers. And one of the reasons why they think God is not gonna enact justice on their behavior. He says this, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Have you ever thought about that? We live 2000 years past when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven and he said, I'm gonna come back. And yet 2000 years have gone by. Many, many people have thought, wait a second, where is this coming? Right? Where, did, did, he, did he say he was going to return? He hasn't. So he's likely not going to return. This is what they're saying. This is about 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And they're saying, come on, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's happened. Nothing's changed. He's not going to come back. There's not going to be any justice. It doesn't matter since there's not going to be any justice. There's not going to be any judgment. I can live however I want to live. I can manipulate whoever I want to manipulate. The only thing that matters is me getting rich now and getting all of my desires satisfied now. That's what the false teachers are thinking. And so Peter says this to them. He says, um, for they deliberately overlooked this one fact. The heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He's talking about the account of creation in Genesis chapter one. How there was water, the waters were separated, the land came out of the water. He's talking about creation. And it says, and by means of these, the world was then existed and was deluged. That would be the flood, right? Was flooded with water and perished. Now he's talking about chapter two and the judgment that God enacted on the rebellion of humans and angels. And they, and they perished. But by the same word, right? The word that, that spoke all of these things, the word that did all of these things, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This fire is a purifying fire. This fire is a fire that's going to reveal the quality of what's going on in a person's heart and a person's mind. And we're going to see this in the next couple of verses. But basically what Peter's saying is, well, you believe that God created the world. You believe that there was a flood and yet you don't believe God's going to be just. He says, look at what you already believe, what you already espouse, what you already say. Look what God has done. A lot of times we, we, we look back at the past to predict the future. In fact, that's part of the way that our brains are formed. We remember the past to predict the future. Peter's saying, look back at what has happened. Don't you understand that God is just right now and he will enact justice one day. And then he explains. They think it's been a long time, but he explains this uh, in, in the next verse, verse eight. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. He says, don't overlook this one fact. And here, over here in my notes, I've got the fact. It's actually a multifaceted fact. But the first part is this. Don't you understand that time works differently with God? That we experience time moment after moment after moment after moment. That's not the way that God experiences time. Whether it's uh, God giving his name to the Israelites, to Moses, I am that I am, I exist, I'm the God who just exists. Or Jesus, when he's talking uh, to some people who are questioning uh, God and how he works. God is outside of time. God, what I would say is God is in every moment all the time. That God doesn't experience life one moment after another and learn and increase and grow. That's not how God is. God is outside of time. 
He can be in every moment, always at one time, now and forever. It blows my mind. I don't understand it. But that's what Peter's trying to say. Time is different for God. So you think it's been a long time because you've lived since the promises and it's been 30 years. And 30 years is a long time for a human being. I am 30 plus a lot of years old. And, and that, I mean, 30 years, that's a good chunk of time. It's a long time. It's the amount of time it's been since I was 15 years old. Yeah, 30 years ago, right? This is my midlife crisis that's going, it's growing out right now. That's what's going on. But I get that. I get it. Like I get that feeling of, wait a second, it's, it's been 30 years. What's God gonna do? And Peter says, first of all, remember, time doesn't work the same for God. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. He's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, right? It seems slow to you. It seems like a long time for you, but here is what God is actually doing. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's referring back to Isaiah chapter 34 when Isaiah says the clouds will be rolled back or the heavens will be rolled back. He's talking about what's gonna happen when Jesus returns, there's gonna be an event that is so earth shattering it will expose everything for what it is. Talked about that word sincere, that word about purity. Talked about the fire in the last verses that we talked about. This is a revealing fire. It's a fire that reveals what's going on. Uh, Paul talks about in another place, Paul says that God, when Jesus returns, he will reveal even the intentions of our heart. And then the judgment's gonna come. He's gonna reveal not just what we did, not just what we said, but what we thought, why we did what we did, why we said what we said. And this, is, this can be a little bit scary because we are excellent at putting on a facade, putting on a front and displaying only a, a part of, of who we are. We might have some devious intentions in our mind, but we're gonna display that we have a pure mind that our intentions are pure, that we're all about your good. We're all about what's gonna be good for you. And yet secretly, deviously in our mind, we wanna use you, we wanna manipulate you, we don't care about you, but we're not gonna say that. We're not gonna display that. And Peter says, just so you know, one day everyone's gonna know. Everyone's gonna know what went on in here. Everyone's gonna know what went on in here. It's going to be revealed. It's going to be exposed. So all of you false teachers who are double-minded, who aren't sincere, who, who aren't pure, who have mixed motives, God's gonna expose that. This is a big deal. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I circled the word you, I put a star by the word you because this is the brilliance of what Peter did, guided by the spirit. And he, I mean, it's beyond. But in order for us to see it, we need to understand how the human brain works. So we're gonna take a little detour and we're gonna look at the human brain. Uh, and it is fascinating. I don't know if you've ever studied much about the human brain, but if you have, 
It's incredible. It's a work of art. It's amazing what God did when he designed the human brain. I don't know how people who study the human brain don't believe in an intelligent God that designed the human brain. Like I, I, don't, I can't fathom it. I think it takes more faith after studying the human brain to believe that it happened by chance than that there is an intelligent creator who actually wired it and designed it. It, it blows my mind. The brain blows my mind. It, it's the way that it is. So here's what we're going to do. I got a slide. I'm going to show you uh, an image of the brain. It's got some colors in it. And then we've got over here some processing. Now, here's the deal. The brain has two halves to it. We've got the left half and the right half. So I want you to, everyone to touch the left side of your head. Touch the left side of your head. This is your left brain. Now, your left brain processes things differently than your right brain. Your left brain processes Logic. You can remember the left brain with logic, two L's, left brain logic. It does mathematical stuff. It does linear thinking. It does logic. It does verbal processing. This is the uh, left brain. And when you think about thinking, when you think about the way that the brain works, most of us tend to picture left brain activity, left brain processing. Now, we also have a right brain. This gets left out a lot. Touch the right side of your head. This is your right brain. Your right brain is relational. Our right, our relational, okay? So your, your right brain produ- uh, processes relational information and your right brain is actually faster than your left brain. So by the time you're thinking logically, by the time you've got words to it, your right brain has already done the things. In fact, your right brain does all of this, these four stages in less than a sixth of a second, perhaps even a 12th of a second. That's how fast the right brain is. It processes all of this relational information before my left brain is even aware of it. And what it does is it determines what I need to know about this other person who I'm with so that I can know, are they a friend or an enemy in this moment? And it has nothing to do with whether, um, you know, they're an enemy always. It's just in this moment, this person in this moment. So what I want to look at is I want to look at the way that the brain kind of processes these things. We're going to look at uh, the, the relational circuits in our right brain. And we're looking at these four stages that they go through because it's going, to, it's going to blow our minds. Okay, so here's what's going on. In stage one, our brain, and this is, you know, this, this red pink stuff in the middle. Our brain is trying to answer the question, does this person in this moment matter enough for me to allocate energy to connecting in relationship and maintaining relationship with this person? Does this situation, this circumstance merit enough energy? Because we're trying to conserve energy. Our brains only have so much energy. It wants to conserve energy. So it's asking this question, does this person in this moment matter enough, good or bad, that I would give the energy to continue the processing. That's level one, stage one processing. Stage two processing tags this energy with either good, bad, or scary, right? It takes, uh, it uses implicit memories to determine the things that I'm experiencing right now. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Or is this a scary thing? And then it adds on layers of these seven different major emotions that we experience. Joy, anger, sadness, fear, disgust, hopelessness, and shame. Right? It, it determines this is good and maybe it adds some joy. It determines it's bad and maybe it adds some anger. It determines uh, that it is scary and it adds fear. Or multiple emotions to it. But you can begin to say the energy that is happening in level one, once it gets to level two, gets taken up a notch. Now we move to level three. 
Level three, and this is what's so cool about level three. Level three is this green right here. And this level three green works all the way through our brain. It starts low in the back of our brain, goes up and over through the middle, and then down uh, in the front. And what level three does, this would be our cingulate cortex. Level three is gathering all kinds of relational information from all over the brain. The things that we're seeing from our occipital lobe, what we're hearing from our temporal lobe, and, and all this stuff from our brain. And it's analyzing body posture. It's analyzing voice tone. It's analyzing all of the things and circumstances and scenarios right now so that I can determine, is this a friend or is this an enemy? And I'm trying to figure out what's this other person thinking? So it's looking at my mind and it's looking at the other mind. And is this going to be a mutual mind moment where we're connected in relationship or is this a deal where they're not safe, where they're scary? Because your brain right now is trying to determine when this person is coming at you, are they coming at me with a knife or are they coming at me with a hug, right? Because I need to react differently if they're coming at me with a knife than with a hug, unless I'm not a hug person and maybe it's the same thing, right? Maybe, maybe it's the same. I don't know. If you're not a hugger, maybe it feels like a knife. I'm not sure. This is what your brain is doing. Once it gets from level three to level four, it adds a third perspective, what you might call an internal observer. And what this, this third perspective is really doing, it's majorly focused on our identity group. Your identity group is your people, right? The people that you are attached to, that you love, that you trust. The people, when you say we, it's the people that you think then. And it's trying to determine how do we act in this scenario with this type of person? And we, we think about our values. We think about how it's going to make our body feel. And we think about what we've seen in our identity group before. The, the way that this works, we develop in, in um, multi-generational community. The way that we learn how to behave is through what we've seen. And so oftentimes you'll find yourself um, acting like your parents, even though you promised you'd never be like your parents. Right, has anyone ever experienced that awful uh, feeling at one time? You think, oh my goodness, that's my, that's my mom. That's my dad. Oh goodness. I promised I would never, but here I am. It's because that's what we do. We learn by watching the people who we have attachments to, how they act and react. And so in this situation, our last level, our fourth level is determining how would we react in this circumstance or situation by what we have learned and seen other people do. That's our brain. That's how it processes. Now, here's the deal. Our brain will separate people into one of two categories and it's extreme. It's either friend or enemy. It's just friend or enemy. There's no in-between. In any given situation, in any given circumstance, it's either friend or enemy. And there are three, based on the processing and where it breaks down in our brain, there are three types of enemy mode. The first type of enemy mode is simple enemy mode. And simple enemy mode is, is this. Um, we show a simply, simple enemy mode. Thank you so much. It's, it's people are processed by the brain as objects or obstacles rather than, than humans. Level one relational circuits, they don't produce enough energy to connect or engage in relationship. I think it, a great way to, to understand this is what my wife and I call task mode. So my wife and I, um, we can relax with the best of them, but when it's time to get stuff done, we get stuff done. Right? If we have a lot of things we need to accomplish and we have a limited time uh, to do it, our brain goes into what we would call task mode and we are all about the tasks. Right? We got stuff to do. We got stuff to get done. It's important. It matters. We don't have a lot of time. And so when I encounter a human who wants to connect with me relationally and I'm in task mode, what are they? Obstacle. 
a frustration, an annoyance, right? I'm headed in a direction. I've got stuff to do. I've got stuff to get done. And a person wants to stop me and have a conversation. Enemy or friend? At least the way that our brain thinks about it, the way that our brain processes, that person is now an enemy. And what my brain says is, I'm not going to give enough energy to interact with this person. It's going to take too much energy. So I'm just going to try and bypass them the best that I can. That would be, uh, that, that would be a simple enemy mode. Many of us do this, right? We got stuff to do. We got tasks to get done. And people are not um, worthy in that moment, in our brain, according to our brain, worthy of the energy it will take to connect in relationship. When you ignore, ignore a phone call, you ignore a text, that, that would be simple enemy mode, right? These are the types of things that our brain is doing. Now, simple enemy mode sometimes doesn't seem that bad. But when someone's trying to connect relationally, this can, you can damage a relationship, right? When I'm, I remember I told my wife early on, early, early on, I said, here's the deal. You are more important than the television, but I need you to know that when I'm watching television, I cannot have a conversation with you. I'm physically incapable of having any sort of relational connection when I'm watching television. So if you want to turn the TV off, if you want to pause the movie, I'm totally fine with that. Just know that if you want to talk to me while I'm doing this, can't do it. Can't happen, won't happen. This is the way that it works, right? We can damage relationships when someone comes to us and we're in task mode or simple enemy mode. They want to engage and we just ignore them. Or we say something glib and quick and kind of hurt their feelings, right? We can, we can really hurt relationships. Now, what about the second type of enemy mode? This is stupid enemy mode. Kids don't use this word at home. This is the technical word that was given uh, by Jim Wilder. Uh, he was the neuroscientist that's really been studying this stuff, kind of working on the heels of many other uh, people like Alan Shore. But, but stupid enemy mode is, it makes sense because it's when we do stupid things. It's, it's the thing that you see on YouTube, right? When someone's being filmed because they're just going nuts, right? They're saying things that they would later regret to people who aren't really their enemy. They're just going off, right? This would be the classic um, road rage. I was driving the other day um, behind uh, some cars and, and I saw this happen. I was, there was two lanes going one way. And, and I was in the left lane because I go faster. And, and, and it was the right lane. There was this car and it swerved out um, into the left lane and went just right around the car in front of it. Now the car in front of it was a truck. And it was like, it was a truck. And it had a, had a real truck driver in there. And, and, and it, one of those truck drivers was like, you don't do that to me. That was dangerous. That's not okay. So as the car like, like went right around, I mean, really almost hit it. I got, I got a little bit nervous just in that moment. And then that truck driver sped up and got right on its bumper. And then I saw for the next couple miles, them weaving in and out of traffic, the truck driver trace, chasing the person in the car. And I thought, what in the world's going on? They were both in stupid enemy mode. That's what was going on, right? What happens is your brain at level three, that green section that goes all around your brain, your cingulate cortex, it gets overloaded. And so it can't process. And so processing breaks down at that point and people are enemies and you go nuts, right? This is stupid enemy mode. Stupid enemy mode could be when you yell at your kids, or you yell at your spouse, right? Those, those are your people. Those are the people you're connected. That's your family. And yet times, maybe you're going to get overloaded. You can't process it. So you yell. 
You react poorly. This would be if you punch a wall or kick a locker or take your ball and go home. This is stupid enemy mode. This would be if you're playing a card game and things are not going your way and you throw the cards. That's stupid enemy mode, right? I'm guessing many of us have experienced some level of stupid enemy mode at one time or another. Now, the third type of enemy mode is the worst. It's the most devious. This is intelligent enemy mode. Intelligent enemy mode is this. The brain blocks pain signals, preventing a person from feeling the other's pain, resulting in cold, calculating behavior, manipulating the other person for personal benefit. See, this is when all of the, all of the things are happening here in your relational circuits, but you don't feel the other person's pain. So you're able to use their pain and manipulate their pain to get what you want. Anytime that you have an agenda and you don't care about the other person's good, the, what the other person wants, and you're trying to get past whatever their defenses are to get them to do what you want them to do, that's intelligent enemy mode. Intelligent enemy mode, we, we tend to think of it like, you know, a criminal mastermind, but it's often ourselves, right? This is what happened in business. It's happened if you're buying a car, you've got some intelligent enemy mode going on, right? Whenever you're negotiating a contract, oftentimes intelligent enemy mode is at work. When you're asking your parents to give you something, you say you want to go spend the night at Billy's house. And you know your parents don't want you to spend the night at Billy's house and you begin to come up with, with a, a scenario. You begin to come up with, with, a, with a lie or maybe you come up with a speech to try and get your parents to do what you know they don't want to do, right? This is intelligent enemy mode at work. I would say the, the speech that the prodigal son is preparing for his dad, that's intelligent enemy mode. He's trying to manipulate his dad to doing what he wants his dad to do. That's intelligent enemy mode. In fact, dating is oftentimes an exercise in intelligent enemy mode because we are putting on a front in order to get you to think and feel things about me that I want you to think and feel. And I'm not showing you my whole self. I'm not showing you all my cards. Dating, not always, but dating is often intelligent enemy mode at work because we're trying to manipulate another person to think things, to feel things, to do things that we want. And we don't care what they want. We don't care about their good. We care about what we want. So why does this matter? Why does this matter? Oftentimes we're intelligent enemy mode. Oftentimes we're in stupid enemy mode. Oftentimes we're in simple enemy mode. But I just want to remind you of some people and some people groups that might put you in enemy mode. So would you show us that the next slide? See, as you scan this, I'm guessing that in the last few years, one or more of these people or these people groups have put you in some type of enemy mode. Either simply simple enemy mode, you didn't think they were worthy of even considering do you think they were worthy of time? Do you think their argument was worthy of arguing or talking about? Maybe it was stupid enemy mode. Perhaps you got into a tirade with another person like this. You were yelling at them. You were writing things that you later regret on social media. You were blowing up and exploding. Perhaps it's intelligent enemy mode. Maybe you want to do whatever you can to manipulate those types of people. But here's the deal, men and women. What we've learned in the last few years is that we struggle with the greatest two commandments. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it or connected to it. Love your 
neighbor as yourself. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he expands it. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. See, the mark of a Jesus follower is someone who loves even their enemies. Someone who doesn't process in their brain people or even enemies as enemies. But here's the deal. If you look at this and maybe you're beginning to feel some things, maybe there are some people on here that have frustrated you, people on here that have hurt you. And you're like, how in the world am I able to love my enemy? Because it's hard. It's not easy. What do I, I mean, my brain is functioning. It's already labeling people before I even can think about it. What do I do? Right? If this all happens before I even think, before I'm even aware, before conscious thought, what do I do? And this is why what Peter did is so brilliant. He's what we need, what we need to combat the way our brain processes enemies is three things. The first thing that we needs, need is healthy rhythms of joy and rest. Healthy rhythms of joy and rest. What joy is, according to the brain, is it's being in the presence of someone who's glad to be with me no matter what. When I'm with someone else who's delighted to be with me, no matter what, I experience joy in my brain. And what healthy rhythms of joy and rest does is it combats simple and stupid enemy mode. Right? It gives me delight so that I can turn on my relational circuits and engage in relationship. And with healthy rhythms of rest and joy, I'm able to have my brain not get overloaded so I don't go into stupid enemy mode. We need healthy rhythms of joy and rest. Secondly, what we need is we need to be connected to an identity group who demonstrates love for enemy. We need to be connected to an identity group that demonstrates love for enemy because on level four processing, where our brain really determines what we're gonna do, how we're gonna act and interact with this other person is we calculate who do we, who are we and what would we do? What do we value? What do we desire? How do we interact with enemies? And if I am not attached to a group of people that have demonstrated enemy, uh, demonstrated love of enemy, then I'm not gonna be able to do that. We've got to be in a community of people that love their enemies. And lastly, we need to ultimately have compassion for our enemies. And that happens through story. We need to be attached to our enemies through compassion and story. And here's how Peter does it. Peter says, Peter says this, God is not slow but he is patient toward who? You. Now, when you hear the word you, who do you think of? Me, right? When you're reading a book, when you're reading an essay, when you're reading some information and it says you, you think me. That's me, right? But get this, who's Peter talking to in particular? The false teachers. See, it's, it, oh, it is incredible. He's talking to the false teachers and because he's created this problem. He's created this issue because, because the false teachers have finally understood, oh my goodness, God, is he, I've made him my enemy and I've hurt his people and God is just and God will enact judgment. So I'm on the wrong side, right? So they see God as their enemy. So he's got to 
help them see God differently and at the same time help the people who used to worship these false teachers and follow these false teachers and act like these false teachers who now realize these false teachers are my enemy. They're hurting me. They're manipulating me. They're taking my money. They're corrupting my morals. I've become enslaved to sin because of these false teachers in the way that they are are showing me to live. So he also has to show the people how to act and interact with these false teachers. And so he uses the word you to speak to the false teachers and say, first of all, I want you to know what God's disposition is towards you who have made yourself God's enemy and have even hurt God's people. God is patient toward you. And he doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants you to repent. That's what God wants. That's God's desire, even for the people who've made themselves God's enemies. But what happens, it raises up in the heart and the mind of the people who now consider the false teachers their enemies. They think, how could God do that? How could God be patient with them? Those, they've hurt me. They've manipulated me. They've abused me. How in the world can God be patient with them? And Peter does it with you. Because you means me. Because I read it as me and I'm reminded that God has been patient with me. That he's had to be so patient with me throughout my entire life because I made myself God's enemy. And I've hurt other people. I've talked about people behind their back. I've manipulated people. I've engaged in all three types of enemy mode. I've used people for my own ends. God had to be patient with me. And what we see first of all is the joy that we experience when we realize that we're in the presence of someone glad to be with us no matter what. And if God is glad to be with the false teachers who have done what they've done, then I know I can be confident that God is delighted to be with me. And he shows us who we are. We are people who are children of God. We are people who love our enemies. We are people who, like God, are patient even with our enemies. We are people who don't want our enemies to, be, to perish. We want our our enemies to repent and to be a part of the family of God. We don't want them to be judged like that. That's who we are. That's our identity group. And then he uses you to rewrite the story in our brain to give us compassion for our enemies so that we can attach to them. Compassion means to suffer with. Passion means to suffer. And compassion means to suffer with. And what we find out about God is God reveals himself to us is God is a God who is compassionate. In fact, as he's telling his, his name to Moses, he attaches the word compassion to his name. He says, my name is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and compassionate. And we see that compassion in its most pure, powerful form in Jesus. God coming to be with Emmanuel, God with us, living the life that we live and then suffering on our behalf because that's who God is. He's a God that's been so patient with me, a God who loved me even while I was his enemy, a God who has still been patient with me, a God who loves me as he finds me. And I know I don't deserve this kind of love. So when I look at my enemy who I think they don't deserve this kind of love, I can relate 
and I can connect and I can attach and I can, filled with God's spirit, guided by God's story, suffer with my enemies in my brain and have the pain signals and feel what they feel and have compassion for them because God's had compassion for me. And that's who we are now. What an incredible God. I want us to pray. And I just, I wanted you to close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, I want you to just take in a long, slow, deep breath in. Because our brains need it. We need the oxygen to fill our lungs, to fill our bodies. But breathing is also very spiritual. Genesis chapter two, breathing is first connected to God breathing the breath of life into the first human being. And so as you breathe, I just want you to to feel that. Just imagine God himself breathing life into your lungs. And as you breathe in, maybe picture Jesus in the room with his disciples after he rose from the grave and saying, receive the Holy Spirit as I breathe on you. Just breathe in the breath of God's life. God, as we breathe in and out, and as we pray to you, I ask that you would remind us of your disposition towards us. I pray that you would remind us tangibly that you are glad to be with us right now. No matter what happened last night, no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what happened in the car on the way to church this morning, God, remind us that you are glad to be with us because you are glad to be with your son and because we followers of Jesus have your spirit. God, remind us that you created us, that you knit us together in each of our mother's wombs, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you made our bodies, you made our hearts, you made our minds, that you've written our names down in your book of life, that there's nothing height, depth, nothing in all of creation that can separate us from your love. Lord, I pray that we would feel and experience your love right now that you would fill us with joy knowing that you are glad to be with us right now, no matter what. And I pray that that joy would filter through our mind and that you would remind us of your compassionate character, remind us of your compassion towards us, that you have chosen and adopted and forgiven us at great cost to yourself. And I pray that that compassion would fill our hearts and minds so much so that it would overflow towards those people who we might consider an enemy. I pray that as we fellowship together, as your family, as your church community, that we would realize that you are a God who loves your enemy and that we would be people who love our enemies. God, thank you that you loved us while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies. Thank you for giving your life for us, for dying the death that we deserved and giving us life, giving us hope, 
given us so much grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you that you love us as you find us, that there's grace for all our mistakes. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this opportunity. And so we pray these things in your powerful name. Amen.